in one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Joshua. And if you didn't bring your Bible with you tonight, would you raise your hand? We'll make sure that you get one. Anybody need a Bible this evening? If you don't have one, you'll be lost. I didn't mean that. If you don't have your Bible, you'll be lost. <laughs> you know, go to hell or something. I, I just meant if you didn't have a Bible, you wouldn't be able to follow along in the Bible study. Lost in that way, not lost, lost. Thanks for helping me over there. The book of Joshua, Lord, thank you again for your word. We pray tonight that you'll bless us as we study. Lord, as we go through your word, may your word go through us and help us, Lord, to see Jesus on every page. For as he said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. We love you, Lord. We want to get closer to you. We want to know you more. Speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If the book of Joshua were a blockbuster video, you would find it in the action section of the store. It'd be right on the shelf with the J's, right between Jaws and Jurassic Park. There you'd find Joshua. Joshua is a story of military conquest. It's full of action and intrigue and espionage. It contains examples of bravery and dedication, deceit and trickery. Joshua is full of spectacular battle scenes with some out-of-this-world special effects. It's a war epic, no doubt. Joshua is full of chills and thrills, but it has deeper levels of meaning as well. For one, spiritually, Joshua is full of instructions for Christians. Moses led the people to the border of the promised land, but he was unable to lead them into victory and rest. That task was left up to his predecessor, General Joshua. Moses represents the law, whereas Joshua is the Hebrew word for the Greek name Jesus. You see, the law could never bring us into God's peace and rest. Only Jesus, our Joshua, our Yeshua, can give us the victory. This Old Testament book shows New Testament believers how to trust our battles to our general Jesus. Organizationally, as well as spiritually, the book speaks to us. For Joshua is a model of effective leadership. You'll find in this book... Biblical principles on spiritual leadership. The book is laced with leadership principles. It's a challenging study for aspiring leaders. The book is also useful militarily. The book has been a blueprint for military campaigns and battle strategies throughout history. Joshua employed a divide and conquer approach that has been mimicked by many. And it may surprise you, but the book of Joshua also speaks to us prophetically. You wouldn't think that the sixth book in the Old Testament would paint a portrait of the end times, but that's what Joshua does. Joshua's conquest of Canaan is an amazing model of the book of Revelation. This is something that we may not get into tonight, but we're going to take a look at in the weeks ahead. The book of Joshua is divided into two sections. 
The first 12 chapters describe the conquest of the land, whereas the last 12 chapters discuss the land's division and its settlement. The first nine verses of chapter 1 could be subtitled, The Making of a Leader. And they introduce us to Israel's new chief, Moses' successor, and the qualifications for spiritual leadership. In fact, as we read through chapter 1, I want to point out to you seven principles of leadership. If you want to be a godly leader in your family, in your neighborhood, in the church, here's a good place to start. Take a look at the example of Joshua. Verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, and here's principle number one, call it preparation. Notice, before taking the helm, Joshua had been first an assistant to Moses. Before assuming leadership, he first served an apprenticeship. Billy Graham was once quoted as saying, If I knew the Lord was coming back in three years, I'd spend two years studying and one year preaching. Never underestimate the importance of preparation. Before a person can lead, they first must be willing to be led. The Hebrew term assistant refers to a menial role, a servant, a waiter, Joshua would lead the nation to claim God's promises, but for an important time in his life, his job description was simply, do what Moses tells you to do. That was important preparation. God says to Joshua in verses 2 and 3, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. Leadership principle number two is purpose. A good leader has to have a purpose. He has to have a vision. A spiritual leader gets that vision from God and then sets out to fulfill their God-given vision. A good leader is purpose-driven. Harry Truman once said, I wonder how far Moses would have gone if he had taken a pole in Egypt. What would Jesus have preached if he had taken a pole in Israel? It isn't the polls or the public opinion of the moment that counts. It's right and wrong and leadership. Men with fortitude, honesty, and a belief in the right, that makes epochs. Your church, your business, your family needs leadership with conviction. Leadership with godly purpose. And a true leader stays the course. Even when it's not popular, a true leader has a purpose. God continues in verse 4. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. He's staking out the land that God has given them. Leadership principle number three is perspective. God wants to make sure that Joshua grasps the big picture. Before he goes in and starts fighting small battles here and there, he wants to make sure Joshua knows the broad extent of the victory that he really wants to win. 
You see, Joshua's men are eager to fight. But their leader here sees the full scope of God's plan. And a broader perspective will enable him to determine where and when to fight. You see, perspective also makes a good leader. Joshua learned to be a big picture person. Verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And here's principle number four, persuasion. You see, a true leader doesn't wait on someone else's initiative. He'll take a stand. He's the one who says, follow me as I follow God. It was said of one successful leader, his great attribute was that he made decisions. You never had to say, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? He told you. Our families, our churches need people who are willing to make the tough decisions, who are willing to assume responsibility. We need leaders who are not afraid to take the heat and grab the bull by the horns. Persuasion was a characteristic of Joshua. Leadership principle number five, I like to call it people. God tells Joshua in verse six, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people... You shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. If you've been following this story, you've become acquainted with these people. That's why he needed to be strong and of a good courage. Because he was going to have to deal with these stubborn and obstinate people. You see, once in the land, once it had been conquered, Joshua will be called on to divvy up the land. And that will plunge him into the nitty-gritty work of dealing with personalities and quirks and people's complaints. In the midst of battle, people take orders. In peacetime, people question orders. Joshua will need to be a servant to these people. He'll have to listen to them. He'll have to show them understanding. He'll have to win their trust and respect. He'll have to bear with their peculiarities. A good leader is a servant to the people. He cares and he listens. It's been said, if, you, if you're going to be a good shepherd, you've got to like the smell of sheep. You've got to love people. In verses 7 and 8, God tells Joshua, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the land which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous And then you will have good success. Leadership principle number six is precept. A godly leader leads God's people by the book. He studies God's word. The precepts of scripture. And he acts according to those precepts. One of Great Britain's greatest leaders, Oliver Cromwell, commented, The leader's job is to give the people not what they want, but what is good for them. The job of a spiritual leader is not to tickle ears, but to teach the people the truth of God's word. 
When a leader departs from Scripture, to me, it's spiritual malpractice. I had someone come up to me on their way out this morning, and they said, Pastor Sandy, this was our first Sunday here, and we've been looking for a church now for several months, and this is the first time we've gotten a good Bible lesson. Well, I took that as a compliment, and I was thankful they said it, but it also broke my heart that you could be visiting churches for several months and not get a good Bible lesson. Hey, a spiritual leader is a person who, who puts the Word of God you know, at the head of the list, who teaches God's Word, who leads by the book. This was important, that Joshua consult the book of the law. Principle number seven, I call presence. In verse nine, God promises Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And when you have that promise, you can be strong and you can be of good courage if you know the Lord is with you. John Ruskin once noted, Really great men have a curious feeling that the greatness is not in them, but through them. I agree. This was the secret of Samson's stupendous strength. It wasn't the size of his biceps or the large pecs and muscles. No, it was the presence of God that gave him strength. Suddenly, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, and God made him strong, and he would go out and do great things in God's name. And this will be the case for Joshua. It will be the presence of the Lord upon his life that will make him strong. Did you know this is the case for you and me as well? It's not by might nor by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And we must always trust in God's spirit, not our own efforts. Hey, God is still looking for good leaders. The church is an army, and an army needs leaders. Your church, your community, your family needs a leader who will rise up like Joshua and say to the people, follow me as I follow God. Well, beginning in verse 10, Joshua prepares the Hebrews to cross the Jordan. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves. For within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Eight centuries earlier, God had promised a prosperous land, this prosperous land of Canaan, to Abraham and his heirs. But for the prior 440 years, the Hebrews had been slaves in Egypt, then nomads in the desert, now, though, the moment has come. Israel holds the title deed to a land flowing with milk and honey, and now it's time to take possession. I want you to understand, all land is God's land. The Bible's clear. Psalm 24, verse 1 declares, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Your land doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. My land doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord and the bank. <laughs> the Lord, though, more than the bank. Nobody really owns their land. The earth is the Lord's 
all land belongs to God. And God has every right to give any parcel to any people that he chooses. God took the land from the Canaanites as a punishment and as a judgment. They were a wicked and an evil people. And God chose to give that land to the Israelites. Today's Palestinians migrated into the land long after God had settled the biblical issue of its ownership. The Palestinians have no ultimate claim to the land. There may be some cases where they should be recompensed for losses, but the land itself belongs to Israel. It was promised to God, by God, to Abraham, and it was possessed by, Mo, by Joshua, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Verse 12. Verse 12 is a reminder to the two and a half tribes that took their inheritance on the east bank of the Jordan River. You remember who those tribes were? Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Joshua spoke to them, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. You know, they wanted all that pasture land on the east bank of the Jordan River. And Moses said, that's fine, but make sure that when you go to possess the land and the other tribes are fighting in the land, that you don't just camp out over here and hang out with your wives and milk your goats and cows and so forth. Make sure that you fight with your brothers to take possession of the land, and then you can come back over here and enjoy your inheritance. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor. This is what he's telling them. He's reminding them of their agreement. And help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise or toward the east. Verse 16. And they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. And isn't that what we want out of our leaders? That they be strong. That they show good courage. Fear in a leader will drive you to someone else. You can forgive a leader his mistakes, but you don't forgive him cowardice. This is what we want in our leaders, for them to be strong and of good courage. Chapter 2. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, went out two men, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Now remember, Moses had sent 12 men to spy out the land. And all but two of them came back with a negative report. Notice this time Joshua only sends out two. And I'm sure he chose men of faith. There is a Jewish legend that suggests that they were Caleb, Joshua's old companion, and Eleazar, the high priest. That's not sure. We're not sure about that. Now Joshua tells them to spy out the land, but to especially focus their attention on Jericho. 
This was the first of Canaan's many city-states that the Israelites would fight. Jericho was a fortified city seven miles west of the Jordan River, just inside the land they were to conquer. Jericho consisted of seven acres surrounded by a double wall. Historians tell us that Jericho had an outer wall six foot thick. Its inner wall was even wider, twice that size, 12 foot thick. The first wall was 11 feet high, whereas the second wall, the outside wall, was 35 feet high, and the wall was tilted at a 35 degree angle. The tilt prohibited anyone from scaling it with ladders. Jericho's walls would be Israel's first major military challenge. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And there are some biblical commentators that have expressed embarrassment over the fact that the spies hid out at a harlot's house. On the other hand, you know, a prostitute was probably the one person in town accustomed to housing strangers. And the spies could stay at her house and could maintain their anonymity. And isn't this also where our Joshua found his greatest acceptance? You remember the religious crowd, they hated Jesus. He never felt at home in the temple. And yet Jesus was embraced by the harlots and by the tax collectors. He attended their parties and he demonstrated God's forgiveness and his love toward them. They longed for his love. They longed for his forgiveness. It's amazing that the harlots also accepted our Lord Jesus as well as these two spies. Verse 2, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Someone ratted. Someone saw these Israeli coverts, and they ratted on Rahab, and they reported these spies to the king of Jericho. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. It was a tense moment when the Jericho detectives knocked on her door and started to interrogate Rahab. One sneeze from these two spies and it would have been curtains for them all, the spies and for Rahab. And she said to them, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Rahab lies for the spies. She says the Israelis have already left the city. But if the king hurries, he can catch them. You might say that she sent the Jericho police on a wild Jews chase. I messed that up. A wild Jews chase. You say that three times fast and you'll have empathy for me. She sent them on a wild juice chase. Okay. Which brings up a provocative question. Are we ever justified 
in telling a lie. Rahab tells a lie. And she's made out to be the hero in the story. Everyone's got to answer that question for themselves. But for me, I think the answer is yes. When Nazi stormtroopers rounded up Jews to send them to the death camps, it was not only excusable, but it was noble and honorable to lie in order to save the life of a Jew. When telling a lie can avoid a greater sin than the lie itself, then I believe that God looks at the heart. I'm not advocating situational ethics, but I do believe in spirit-led ethics. Remember 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 tells us, The letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. I think a strict, wooden, legalistic application of the law will never take into account life's many ironies. That's why we've been given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us apply moral principles and ethics in a loving and consistent and godly manner. I think there are occasions when telling a lie might be appropriate. Verse 7. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Rahab's scheme apparently worked. The spies were safe until the posse returned. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Notice Rahab was a believer. She believed that Israel's God was the one true God. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Zihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. She had heard the news. She had heard these things. She believed in the God of Israel. I imagine Rahab heard the stories from the travelers that had visited her brothel. In verse 11, she says, And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord, Jehovah, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. What a statement of faith. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. She believed in God and she wanted to join his side. The harlot had heard of what God did in Egypt and east of the Jordan. And she realized that Israel's God, Jehovah God, was the one true God. She knows that Jericho will fall and that the Hebrews will triumph. And so she tries to position herself on the winning team. Who can blame her? God's side always wins. And if you're a smart person, you'll want to position yourself on the winning team. You'll want to join his team tonight. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, 
And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. A prostitute is promised a place in God's family. Now that's some amazing grace. Hey, remember, Rahab was a hooker. She was a madam. She was a prostitute. She was a woman who sold her body for sexual favors. Hey, she had fallen off the moral ladder a long time ago. It was not Rahab's lily-white goodness or her perfect purity that saved her. No, it was the only thing she had, her faith. And it is your faith that will save you. It's not your lily-white purity. It's not your good works. It's not your flawless reputation that saves you. It's your faith in God's mercy and in God's grace. And if God saved a Rahab, then God will save you if you mimic her faith. It's interesting, both Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 and James chapter 2 verse 25 make notice of the faith of Rahab. If you want to know the extent to which faith can save, then later tonight turn to Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. For there you'll find in the lineage of Jesus, our spotless lamb, in the pedigree of the purest, you will find the name of Rahab the hooker. She becomes a part of the lineage of our Lord Jesus. It's all a testimony to the saving power of faith in God's mercy. Well, then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. In ancient cities, houses were often built between the two walls. It was in one of these houses that the two spies had sought refuge. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, if you rat on us, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now, let's recap what's happened. Two spies repel down the wall on a rope that's been lowered from Rahab's window. They hide out for three days in the mountains and then they return to their camp. When Jericho eventually falls, Rahab is saved because of the scarlet cord that hangs from her window. Whether the scarlet cord was actually a piece of the rope used by the spies, we're not told. But it does become a symbol of Rahab's salvation and of our salvation as well. For notice this, Jesus too 
came to this earth to spy out the land. Jesus came to this earth to spy out the land. He hung and was lowered from a scarlet rope, literally a blood-stained cross. Afterwards, Jesus hid for three days, not in the mountains, but in the grave. Jesus then rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. In essence, he returned to the camp. And guess what? He's coming again to judge this world. And the only folks who will be saved are those who are holding on to the scarlet cord, to the bloodstained cross. It's all a picture of the work and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Verse 22, they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into your hands. For indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Israel was feared by his enemies because of the power of his God. Chapter 3 recounts the day for which the Hebrews have now waited 440 years. Joshua mobilizes the people to cross the Jordan River finally. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Now, a cubit, remember, was 18 inches. So 2,000 cubits equaled 3,000 feet. The people stayed roughly three-fifths of a mile behind the ark. Remember, the ark represented God's holiness. It carried inside of it the law of God, the two tablets that carried the Ten Commandments. And I think the distance between the ark and the people represented the separation that existed between God and those who lived under the law. Now Joshua continues, Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now for three days the nation has camped next to the river. And they've been watching these raging waters roll by, waters that have been swollen by the spring rains. And I'm sure they're pondering in their minds how three million Hebrew men, women, and children are going to manage to cross this turbulent river. It's interesting that Joshua doesn't send out the Army Corps of Engineers to solve the problem. Mechanics of the crossing were God's problem. This is why Joshua sends out the ark. For the ark represented God's presence. Joshua, by sending out the ark, was trusting in God, not in Israeli ingenuity. Verse 6, Then Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, 
take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. God would lead them into battle. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. The Levites are commanded to bring the Ark to the water's edge, step into the flowing water, and then expect God to work a wonder. The water is Israel's problem. God is willing to work wonders. Joshua's job is to connect God to his problem. This is what God expects from us. Whenever we face a problem, God wants us to bring him into that problem. This is what prayer is all about. It's about connecting God to my problem. Take God to my concern. Connect God with what's bothering me. And when I do, He will work. When the Levites bring the ark down into the water, God works a wonder. And here's my question for you tonight. Have you stepped into the water with God? Have you connected God with your problem? Or have you been trying to solve it and tackle it in your own strength? He says, so Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites, seven nations will be evicted from the land. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. You therefore take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. Now the same miracle that God used to deliver Israel from Egypt, He is going to use again now to bring them into the promised land. He is going to hold back the waters. The same God will do the same miracle. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before them. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water. And he makes a comment. For the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. Joshua is making a point. This is not summertime. This is not the time when the Jordan dries to a trickle. This miracle occurred in the springtime when the melting snow from Mount Hermon caused the Jordan to overflow its banks when this was a raging, gushing river. The moment the priest dips his toes into the water's edge, verse 16 tells us, the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan, 
So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The waters backed up all the way to Adam. This was a city 16 miles north of the crossing point, 20 miles north of the outlet into the Dead Sea. It's interesting that at Adam, the banks of the Jordan rise 40 feet which allowed for the water to, to accumulate without flowing over into the surrounding territory. God had created a supernatural dam. Verse 17. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. But notice again verse 15. The miracle doesn't occur until the priests who carry the ark step into the water. Now I'm sure right before they took that step, they looked at that raging river. And it looked like they were going for a swim. But the miracle occurred when they brought him to the water's edge. Guys, it's always him that prevents a swim. God will never let us drown if we're willing to take that step of faith. If we're willing to bring God to our problem, God will work wonders on our behalf. Hey, as with all of God's miracles, the damming up of the Jordan was preceded by a step of faith. Tonight, you're facing a turbulent problem. Understand, God can work wonders but do we have the faith to take that step into the river with God? Do we have the faith? That's the only question. Chapter 4 tells us, And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever." God ordains a memorial to this miracle, a pile of 12 stones. God wanted Israel to never forget the nation's miraculous birth and crossing into this new land. Verse 8 says, And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan. 
And, and as we'll see in a moment, there apparently were two sets of 12 stones. The stones gathered by the 12 men from each of the 12 tribes were stored back at the camp. Now Joshua grabs 12 more stones and he sets up this memorial at the water's edge. Joshua sets up these stones and he says, in, this, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, that's where he put them, and they are there to this day. Appropriately, Joshua places them right at the water's edge. This will be in a memorial in the exact spot where the people stepped into the river with God. Here will be a memorial of their faith and of their courage. And it was a reminder, no doubt, for several decades. God's miracle at the Jordan River was a watershed event in the history of the nation Israel. Understand what it did for them. It solidified their identity as God's people. It was the same miracle that occurred at the Red Sea, in essence. You know, the parting of the sea, the crossing over on dry ground. But it was the same miracle with a new meaning. When Israel came to the Red Sea, they were slaves escaping their enemies. At the Jordan, they are an army determined to conquer their enemies. Two totally different identities. You know, the cross of Jesus is likewise one miracle with two meanings. You see, the Red Sea speaks of our salvation. It parallels the day that I learned that Christ died for me. But you see, the Jordan speaks of my victory. For it marks the day that I learned that I died with Christ. When I learned that I'm not the same person I once was. That I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Christ, I have a new identity. I'm dead to my past. I'm no longer a slave to my sin, but now I'm a child of God. The power of the Spirit works in me to overcome my enemies. Have you crossed over the Jordan? Have you memorialized the miracle that Jesus has worked in your life? You know, there comes a time when we need to fully embrace that for which God has fully embraced us. Do you find your identity and your destiny in your relationship with Jesus? Or are you still wandering out there in the wilderness trying to figure it out on your own? You see, at the cross of Jesus, the Red Sea parts, sin is forgiven, a prisoner escapes. Yes, that happens at the cross. But something else happens at the Jordan. It's still the same miracle. It's still the cross. But there's a Jordan part of the miracle. At the same cross, the prisoner becomes a prince. He crosses the Jordan and his enemies cower. An overcomer emerges. Here's my question to you. You've passed through the Red Sea, but have you crossed over the Jordan? You make both steps at the same cross, but it's two different experiences. Yes, you've passed through the Red Sea. Your sins have been forgiven. But have you crossed over the Jordan? Have you accepted this new identity in Christ? Are you determined to be an overcomer and a victor for Christ's sake? Do you see yourself now as a new person in Christ? More than a slave. Now a saint and a chosen person of God. He says, so the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan... Until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people, 
according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people hurried and crossed over. Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Three million Hebrews crossed over the Jordan. That included the old men and the women and the children, but there were 40,000 soldiers armed and ready for combat. Verse 14, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. The miracle at the Jordan so closely resembled the parting of the Red Sea that they realized God's hand was on Joshua just as God's hand had been on Moses. This was the miracle that validated Joshua's authority. He says, Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. They entered the land four days before Passover. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Here was the establishment of a second memorial. One was in the riverbed at the water's edge in the Jordan River. The other memorial they set up in Gilgal, which became their base of operation throughout their conquest of the land. He says, Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And there we have the first four chapters of the book of Joshua. Now they're in the land. And as you read through these chapters this coming week, I want you to notice the two things that happen first, the very first things they do. They circumcise the second generation, and then they take part in Passover. And you think about the parallels. Circumcision was the initiation rite into the nation Israel. And we too kind of have a parallel. What is the initiation rite into the body of Christ? Baptism. Baptism. And then Passover... We celebrate Passover too. We celebrate a part of Passover, which is, we call it, communion, the Lord's Supper. So isn't it interesting that Joshua, General Joshua leads them in, 
First thing he does is he, he has them circumcised, then he has them eat Passover. When we become believers in Christ, the Lord brings us into baptism, and then he brings us to the communion, to the Lord's table. Here's what I want you to do as you read through these chapters next week. I want you to look for Jesus. Look for Jesus in every page. There is no, there's no coincidence that the man who led the people of Israel into victory and rest was named, if we were reading in the Greek Bible, it would be Jesus. Now, you know, I'm kind of dumb. I'm just a country bumpkin from Georgia. But if, if Jesus is leading them into the land of promise, then there's probably some lessons there I can learn about my Jesus who's leading me into God's peace and God's rest and God's victory. And so here's your homework for next week. Read the next four chapters. Read through them. And, and ask the Lord, show me Jesus as I read through these passages. We're, we're going to uncover some amazing parallels, some amazing typology that is going to blow your mind as we get into it in the days ahead. And if you even want to go a step further, read through the book of Revelation. Because as I said before, the book of Joshua is in reality a small-scale model of the book of Revelation. Two spies, two witnesses, yeah. ten nations, ten-nation confederacy in the book of uh, Revelation. You remember they started with ten and then three were cut off and there were seven left. We're going to find that there were ten nations that Joshua fought, three of them on the east side of the Jordan. They were cut off. So we read about seven on the west side of the Jordan. A lot of parallel. Really some fun stuff in these next chapters. So I could just teach it to you tonight, but better not. Next Sunday night, of course, is Easter Sunday night. We'll do three services in the morning. And we'll give our Sunday school teachers and nursery workers the night off next Sunday night. That's appropriate. Uh, but the following week, we'll be in Joshua chapters 5 through 9. So you read those, and we'll study them together. Father, thank you for your word. Bless us this week. Lord, we love you so much. And we thank you that you have made it your job to help us when we are tempted. Help us, Lord, to reach out to you to stay open to you and let you do your work in our hearts. Give us victory. Lead us into victory, General Jesus. And help us, Lord, to enjoy your blessings. We pray it in your name, Lord. Amen. You're dismissed. forget we've got uh, we've got some Israel information if anybody's interested in our trip to Israel